My name is Ashif Lalani. I'm an investor, and I want Peak 40 Health. Welcome to Peak 40, the podcast that brings you the tips, tactics, and stories for living your best life in midlife. If you're in your mid-30s to 50s, Peak 40 is the place to get actionable advice on the nuances of nutrition, training, recovery, and mindset in midlife. For the full experience and other valuable resources, register for the Peak 40 weekly newsletter at drbubs.com forward slash peak 40 to enhance your lifestyle and start making midlife your best life. Hey, hey, everyone. I am Mark Bubbs. This is the Peak 40 podcast, and we are into episode number three. Big announcement here today. It's publication day. My new book, Peak 40, hits the shelves on all major book retailers, Indigo, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones, all your independent bookstores, and of course, if you like to listen to books, Audible as well. So if you're looking for a deeper dive, a more granular look at some of the topics we're covering here in the Peak 40 podcast, then definitely check that out. Of course, you can also sign up for the Peak 40 Weekly, which is our weekly curated newsletter, absolutely free, where I share the tips, tactics, strategies, and stories for upgrading your nutrition, making your exercise more impactful and time efficient, as well as covering all those areas of recovery and mindset that become so crucial in the hecticness and madness of midlife. Now, on that note, in episode number three, we're going to be talking exercise and how to be more efficient, time efficient, and really impactful with that exercise. And so I've got Dr. Martin Gabala, expert researcher, physiologist, who pioneered a lot of this work in high-intensity interval training, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but again, really important to revisit. Martin will talk to us about a little bit about the history of HIT training and how early Olympians like Roger Bannister, who broke the four-minute mile, would use this almost exclusively as their training regime, how impactful it is for reversing chronic conditions like prediabetes and diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and how exercise really is just one of the most powerful interventions that we have uh, in medicine, yet it's so underutilized. He'll also share with you a few different protocols for HIIT training. And if you're someone who's really struggling with your physical health, you know, maybe you can't even run um, because of pain, etc. You know, the value of walking and interval walking is really compelling. So have a listen here and I'll catch you on the other side of this clip. The scientific history of interval training dates back to at least the 1950s with some German publications. First English language publication was in 1960. And then again, you see the same sort of thing where it comes into play uh, for a while. Um, obviously, Tabata style interval training um, was based on a paper out of Japan in uh, the mid 1990s. And then it lays dormant for a little bit. And then probably since about 2005, there's been a, a massive upsurge as well. You know, I think what we've learned a lot over the last 10 or 15 years or so is number one, just the surprisingly time efficiency of interval exercise. So how low can you go? Uh, and the idea that if you're willing and able to do these very short, very hard bursts of exercise, uh, you can see adaptations with a very surprising small volume of exercise. That'd be point number one. And point number two is just the um, the wide variety of interval training protocols that have been applied to so many different individuals, including cardiovascular disease patients, people with type 2 diabetes, um, metabolic syndrome, and, and other conditions. And so I think we've learned a lot about the potential application of different types of interval training uh, to these uh, non-healthy individuals. 
Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, as a boots on the ground clinician here, diet and exercise for me are sort of fundamental components of my practice. And, you know, in your book, I love the quote, you say, you know, we spend billions of dollars a year on research to create pills and improve health. Most of the pills ta- target one area of health and have unwanted side effects. Meanwhile, the most powerful intervention possible, which is exercise, goes comparatively unutilized. And I, I think that's definitely rings true with a lot of the clients that I see in terms of uh, being able to dovetail in and drip feed in exercise. And the the response you get when people realize that they don't need this huge dose of exercise. So could you speak, you mentioned there a little bit in terms of uh, the impacts on heart. I know the Copenhagen heart study was, was pretty influential there and also on uh, hyperinsulinemias and diabetes. Uh, yeah, both of those areas, um, interval exercise has been uh, widely applied now. So there's work going back again, back uh, to uh, Germany in the late 80s and, and early 90s. Uh, there was a medical doctor there named uh, Katerina Meyer who is employing uh, intense interval exercise. And when I say intense interval exercise, we're talking one minute repeats at a heart rate of about 90% of maximum in a cardiac rehabilitation uh, setting. And over time, that work has continued. There's a lot of work uh, being done in Norway now using a a protocol that we call the Norwegian, uh, which is just four four minute bursts of uh, effort, again, at about 85 or 90% of of maximal heart rate in a cardiac rehabilitation setting. Uh, We've done some small proof of principle studies on individuals with diabetes. So these would be obese individuals in their 60s uh, performing exercise at about 90% of maximal heart rate. Um, And there was just a a meta-analysis that was published last year uh, that suggested that interval exercise is superior at improving uh, various indices of of insulin uh, sensitivity. So again, I don't think there's any question now that interval exercise can be applied to these populations and can be very effective. Um, But in the big picture, people don't need to be afraid of interval training. And I like to think that there's a a flavor or variety uh, that's suitable for just about anyone. Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned this idea of obviously intensity over duration being so key. And, and what struck me with the Copenhagen Heart Study was the fact that people who walked a lot, we always assume a, you know, getting lots of walking in and movement is something that I encourage and generally we encourage people to do. Um, but of course, as you get towards the top of that bell curve, you know, it doesn't seem like more is better from what we see in, in the study here in terms of the intensity, the speed at which people are walking is actually a, a much better predictor. Uh, you're right. And so, you know, big picture, of course, getting people moving is important. And so if, if people are already walking, good on you, fantastic, because I think that's half the battle is just getting people doing some sort of physical activity. And that's, of course, where we see the greatest reduction in mortality risk and cardiovascular disease risk. But if you're already being active, then I think it's important to push the pace once in a while. Uh, there's a randomized, small, but uh, randomized clinical trial out of Denmark that looked at interval walking compared to continuous steady state walking. In both groups, it was relatively gentle interval exercise. The peak heart rates were around 66% of maximum on average. But what that study clearly showed was that interval walking was superior to continuous steady state walking in terms of boosting cardiorespiratory fitness, uh, reducing blood fat uh, and uh, body fat, and importantly, improving blood sugar over 24 hours. And so the very simple practical takeaway there was uh, if you're doing walking, that's great, but uh, interval walking is probably better in terms of the benefits that it can be uh, induced. Gotcha. I mean, I know the general recommendations for people to exercise, you know, we're up to about 150 minutes per week. Most people just don't get there. I mean, I can't recall off the top of my head if it's 15 or 20 percent of people actually getting that much exercise in. So this idea of being more efficient with the exercise is uh, seems like an absolute no brainer. 
It you know it does when you look at 150 minutes per week. That's only about two percent of the time in our week. I you know I think it's clearly an excuse for for some people, but a lot of people lead very busy, time pressed lives and and find it challenging to uh, to work this in. Uh, you know, I often say that the public health guidelines are based on great science. And so this is not at all an effort to challenge the public health guidelines or pitch this as an interval versus the traditional approach. But as you say, depending on the study, 15, 20, 25 percent adherence to public health guidelines. And so really, I think we need to be providing people with other menu choices, other exercise options. Uh, when I talk to my behavioral colleagues, uh, that's the point that they make. You know, the more options we can give people, the better. And so I think the lessons from interval training are, are one, you know, if you don't have 45 minutes or an hour block of time in the day, that's all right. You know, you can get in a, a 10 minute bout of activity uh, simply by taking the stairs at work. And as you know, simple as that sounds, it can be extremely effective. And we're increasingly learning more about this idea of exercise snacking, uh, which is just breaking up physical activity into more frequent, shorter bouts through the day. And there's uh, evidence to suggest that that actually may be superior in terms of blood sugar control, blood pressure control, as opposed to a single longer continuous bout of exercise uh, done all at once. And so I think intervals provide more options to fit exercise within your day and within your life rather than having to structure your life around exercise. And of course, this brings us to the question all about protocols, what people want to know, what kind of routines or things to, to introduce into their exercise regimes. You know, where would a place to start for them in terms of interval training? Yeah, I talked about that beginner workout earlier, which is really just this idea of interval walking. That's a great place to start. And and so, you know, it's a very simple message. But if your only exercise is walking around the block, that's basically picking up the pace for a few light posts and then backing off and, and just getting out of your comfort zone, you know, based on perceived exertion. You don't have to be sprinting by any means, just picking up the pace a little bit. So maybe it's a little harder to talk to your exercise uh, partner. You can feel your uh, a little bit more out of breath, maybe your heart rate's up uh, a little bit, and then back off. And that's a really easy way to start. But uh, we're big on just perceived exertion. And so in the book, we try to anchor all of the workouts to uh, a very simple uh, one to 10 scale, the Borg perceived exertion scale, where this idea of one is a very easy or resting pace, 10 is all out maximum, like you might sprint to save your child from an oncoming car. And so interval walking might be around a three out of 10. That's the type of, of pace that you might demand. Uh, and then in the book, we basically lay out a series of workouts, uh, the 10 by one, for example, that's that one minute relatively intense pace and then a minute of recovery. Maybe that's done at a five out of six out of 10. And then of course you work up to these more intense flavors where you're really going hard or trying to come close to a 10 out of 10, but maybe only for about 20 seconds at a time. So you can really scale these workouts, I think, to any starting level of fitness and based on our own uh, perception of effort. All right, let's unpack what this means for you in midlife. And I think a good jumping off point is just what Martin said there at the end, which is, you know, if you don't want to structure your life around exercise, then we've got to find points in your day to plug in that movement, to plug in that exercise. And when we consider that the target is that 150 minutes per week of physical activity, which, again, only one-fifth, one out of five people are achieving, then this makes being more efficient, time efficient with your exercise really compelling. And it was actually Martin's work that showed that, you know, three sessions at 20 minutes each, I believe it was, is equivalent to the 150 minutes a week. So we can be really, really time efficient with our exercise. Now, Martin mentions a few different protocols. You can, again, do one minute on, one minute off. So always warming up for about five minutes, and then it would be one minute at a higher pace. It could be 70, 80, 90%. 
working your way up to that, and then one minute rest, which would be at a walking or a very light jog pace, and completing, again, five to eight rounds of that. You also have the Norwegian, which would be, again, after your five-minute warm-up, you could then go into four-minute bursts, which is grueling, but you know it's over pretty quick because you've got four minutes on and then typically about a three-minute rest, and then you're going to repeat that for four rounds, and again, you're done in a very, very short period of time. Now, if you're struggling with injuries, you know, back pain, knee issues, foot issues, then interval walking is a great, great place to start. Now, if you're listening in and you're already an avid exerciser, then you've got to watch that you're not doing too much HIIT training because the intensity of the workouts when you're fitter become more intense. And so they take a greater toll on your nervous system. So if that sounds like if you're someone listening in who is fitter, you've got to make sure that you've got some metrics that tell you if you're getting fitter or not, such as you know how fast you run a mile or what your time is for 5K or a certain bout of exercise. You've got to be working off something. Otherwise, you can. it's easy to go down that path and drift down the path of, of getting addicted to those endorphins and really wearing yourself out. So if you're that person who's, who's kind of run down from all the training, then you've got to train a little bit smarter as well with those intervals. All right, now let's shift gears and try to gain some insights from one of the best of the best athletes, endurance athletes on the planet, Zach Bitter, the world record holder in the 100-meter ultramarathon. It's going to provide you with some really enlightening insights on the roadblocks, the common mistakes, the things that come up for the general population, for the rest of us, even for athletes for that matter, that make it difficult to achieve our goals. This dovetails with what we discussed in episode two around mindset. So have a listen to Zach. And again, I'll catch you on the other side of this clip. I imagine there's going to be a certain amount of discomfort going on as you're running 100 miles. Like how how big is the is the mindset at the elite level, maybe versus, say, the recreational level? Yeah, you know, I think there's there's some parallels as well as maybe some differences. I think like when uh, when you're at the, end, the, the tip of the spear or the elite level, you know, you're you're maybe more likely to run someone else's race because you feel like you have to versus if you're kind of in the middle of the pack and you have this idea of like, well, I have to run my race and that's how I'm going to get my best result. And I can't worry about anyone else. Mm-hmm. And, and to a degree, I think the elite crowd can maybe learn a bit from that, um, that mentality in the middle of the pack. Cause it doesn't always like if you're, if you find yourself in a position where in order to win, you have to do something that is, next to impossible or impossible you have to ask yourself how realistic your goal is i guess at that point and and adjust accordingly um and and that gets maybe a little more difficult to navigate when you're you have a chance to win or you're on kind of on track to be on the podium just to decide how much you want to roll the dice to try to have say your best possible race versus just a very solid race that um that you know will end with a at least a good result so like that mental component, I think, is really big, especially when you get to the, the latter stages of some of these longer events, because when you look at just the pacing of some of these events, like nothing about even the fast miles with them are really that relatively fast compared to what you could do at any given moment. So then it ultimately just becomes how how focused can you stay to be on that that pace that you need to do in order to get there and that can sometimes be the determining factor as to whether you have a good finish or, you know, a subpar finish is like how motivated are you to kind of push your body at those lower intensities after you've been out there for a long time and you're, 
your brain, your brain and your mind are kind of fatiguing from just the act of, of how long it is. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, exactly. The duration. I mean, obviously got a lot of endurance athletes listening in recreational, trying to be more elite and, and coaches as well. And they're, you know, I'm sure chomping at the bit to be asking you questions around how they could improve their performance. So maybe the best way to ask this is what are some common mistakes that you might see with clients that you work with that are in that sort of perhaps sub elite is maybe the better way to describe them, but you know, who really trying to, to push the performance side of things. What are, what are some common, you know, errors or pitfalls or gaps in their, in their training? Yeah, I think a lot of it is uh, kind of diverging from where they're at and their circumstances are and trying to like more or less do what someone else is doing. I think I see you see that a lot where, you know, especially nowadays when we have so much access to everyone from social media and then that bleeds right even into the training aspect. You have programs like Strava where you can see what everyone's doing and um, really get hung up on what someone else is training for versus what you are and where they're at versus where you are. And uh, that can be difficult, I think, for some folks where, you know, they may have a rest day planned and they open up Strava and see, oh, well, my buddy just did this awesome tempo run and nailed it. And then they want to go out there and do the same thing or, you know, someone someone stole their segment on Strava. So even though they're supposed (laughs) to do an easy day, they go out there and do a workout instead. So uh, I think sometimes getting like not following the plan for themselves is a big one. Another one, I think is just the consistency factor. Sometimes people get hung up with what they think they should be doing and they try to force that into their the context of their life and it just doesn't fit. And they would have done better ultimately if they just were consistent within the time they did have versus trying to do everything um, everything to the way they think is right, but ultimately it just becomes too much. And uh, I think that's just something we see in a lot of contexts of, of life even where people see where they want to be and then they, they, they try to get there too fast and then they, they don't necessarily do it the right way and it doesn't end up being sustainable for them long-term. All right, let's wrap up this episode number three, all about time efficient aerobic training. What you want to aim for, if you're starting out, you're trying to get fitter or if you're time pressed and you're actually an avid exerciser, two sessions per week of HIIT training between 10 and 20 minutes is a great, great place to start. That could be cycling, running, the elliptical. You could use bodyweight movements like air squats, burpees, all those types of things. Zach's point around realistic goals. You know, when you start out an exercise and you haven't been training for a while and all of a sudden in the first 30 days, you want to go five days a week, you're going to go really intense and you're basically trying to sprint when it's a marathon. So be sure to set realistic goals and don't get pulled away or swept away in what someone else is doing. You know, as Zach points out, that's not going to get you to where you need to go. You've got to be, you've got to put the blinders on, build a plan for you and stay consistent. That is ultimately the key. We talked about that in again, episode two, this idea of showing up every day, put the work in, trust the process, and you'll soon be amazed at how much progress you can make without really having to commit massive amounts of time to all this stuff. Awesome. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please take two minutes, download, subscribe, and leave us a review on iTunes. It's going to be a major, major help to the podcast. And we've also got a free bonus for you here. Next Monday, May 24th, we're launching a free 
five-day mobility challenge with our friends Dane and Freya at Move Daily. So if you want to jump in on that free five-day mobility challenge, if you're struggling with aches, pains, stiffness, head over to drbubs.com and you can register there. Once again, my new book, Peak, drops today, May 20th, available on all the outlets or Audible if you like to listen. Massive thank you to everyone for all the support. Whereas my first book, Peak, was aimed more at practitioners and trainers, Peak 40 is really aimed at the clients that I see in everyday practice, so I hope you find it useful. Any questions about this episode or others, hit me at DrBubs on Twitter or Instagram. Use the hashtag Peak40, and we'll use those questions in our Q&A episodes. Have a fantastic weekend, everyone. We'll see you again on Monday.